welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. In this episode, we'll be talking about the eighth of our top 10 traits for world-class customer experience. Yes, and the eighth was pretty much linked to the seventh. For the seventh, we were talking about ensuring that we had bonuses, staff bonuses aligned to customer satisfaction. Um, the eighth one is ensuring we've got external and internal suppliers who are responsible for delivering customer satisfaction, making sure we reward them in the right way. And the sort of fundamental idea being here, if you're letting someone else make your customers one of your suppliers, if they're part of the process for making your customers happy, um, it would seem like a sensible thing to reward them on making your customers happy, not on some pseudo measurement of that, some KPIs or some other things, just just taking on board that they're, that they're the experts, we want them to make the customer happy, so let's reward them on making the customer happy. Yeah, and I think that there's a there's a phrase that floats up occasionally, which is something like, you can't outsource customer service. Um, which is sort of ironic because obviously you can, and many organisations do. But I, th I think what it's getting at is you can't outsource responsibility yeah. for the customer experience. Um, and that's what this is all about, really, saying it's still our responsibility, even though someone else is doing this, uh, it's still our responsibility to manage, manage it, it and yeah. make sure it's uh, delivering the right experience for customers. We can't just hold up our hands and say, you know, well... We put the parcel in with the courier, and if it turns up late, well, I'm afraid that you just have to blame whoever the courier might be. <laughs> I nearly committed libel, and <laughs> so I won't do, but yeah, we can't just point at the contractor we've chosen and say it's not our fault. Absolutely, absolutely. Can I tell one of my favourite stories? Go on. <laughs> it, it, it's, we have a league table where we put all our clients on, on the league table, and um, people are always interested who's at the top of the league table, but equally, you often get asked, oh, who, who's at the bottom of the league table, and have you got any amusing stories of how they've made customers' lives absolutely hell? Um, and there's various people at the bottom of the league table. No longer a client of ours, and this is going back numerous years, um, but for a period, the bottom of the league table was the canteen at BBC World Service's Bush House. So the late, great Terry Wogan <laughs> was indeed true about BBC Canteen. And how they addressed that was they decided to go from it being um, an in-house facility. And, and they did all those things that every client, and we always do, um, say about when you've got a low score. Well, the BBC... The customers had unrealistic expectations. There was a really high proportion of Oxbridge people there that travelled the world. So they were expecting various things that just a canteen couldn't offer, let alone sort of a restaurant. And there was all, all the sort of the usual things came out. They made the decision to subcontract it out. And someone made the really good decision of let's reward the supplier on a very, very significant bonus on how satisfied or dissatisfied they make the users of the canteen. So not on how many hot or cold dishes there were, how many vegetarian or vegan options there were, or how often the menu changed. They literally stood back and said, you're the expert in that. Your job is to make this set of people happy. We're gonna measure that set of people. And if you make them really happy, you'll receive a bonus. If you don't make them really happy, you know, you, there was some penalty clauses in it, and we were talking some significant amounts of money here. But I thought, what a really good way of managing a supplier mm. 
to help achieve your own objectives. I think that's a, it's a good story, that, and I think the key to it is understanding, it, at least in principle, the people you're outsourcing to should be the experts in what they do. So if you choose SLAs that are telling them how to do their job, you're missing an opportunity for them to be creative in solving the problem. Mm. The only thing you're incentivizing them to do is be creative in technically hitting the SLA while saving a bit of cost. Whereas if you make the SLA customer satisfaction, yeah. then the incentive for them is to, yeah, sure, reduce cost in avoidable contact yeah. and dot, 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 but not to try and cut corners in the delivery of, of the core service and to be creative and innovative and, and you know, be better at doing the basic job. And this cuts across many, many sectors, because whether it's a canteen or a lot of manufacturers would outsource their deliveries to, to a subcontractor or housing associations with some of the repair process, you know, there are various different categories where I think having that same, seeing the bigger picture, not trying to micromanage, but seeing the end goal, it's just a really good way of driving up customer satisfaction. And you can often end up with actually a conflict where the supplier is saying, I want to create a good customer experience, but the SLAs that you've got in this contract prevent mm. me from doing that. And you know, social housing and repairs is a good example. One thing that comes up pretty often is that what customers will complain about is, well, they came to sort of patch up a bit of damage in a wall in the house, and they plastered over this two-foot square in the middle of the living room wall, and they painted over this two-foot square in the middle of the living room wall, and the rest of the living room is still as it was when it was last painted, you know, five years ago, whatever. And from a customer's point of view, this is ridiculous. And you see, contractors come out, they've plastered a wall, they've painted this tiny patch of wall, <laughs> and it looks ridiculous. You'd never do it in your own home. So they're saying to the contractor, well, why are you doing this? The contractor's answer is, well, because that's... That's what we're asked to do by the client. So you have a, a conflict between you know, what the customer actually wants and what the, you know, the, the landlord is asking its contractor to do and allowing its contractor really oh. to do and will, is prepared to pay the contractor for. So that, I'm not saying, by the way, that there's necessarily, the answer is necessarily always do what the customer wants because it isn't, but it, you have to think about the, the decisions and the behaviours that you're motivating for the people who are... Yeah. Who are contracting for you. And this isn't about throwing loads of cost at it and, as you say, just, just saying yes to customers because it's an easy thing to do. It's really trying to understand, I think, probably the full customer journey and the full customer picture because I would imagine when that contractor leaves the house, that's not the end of that situation. I would imagine the customer's going to be phoning someone up, mm -hmm. going to be creating some cost elsewhere, going to be complaining, going to be telling people... And there's got to be a level where you say, hold on, that has a certain amount of invisible cost that if we don't do this to a certain standard, we're going to incur. So let's have a look at where the, um, where the fulcrum is on the, yeah. on the seesaw. And that idea of invisible cost is really important, I think, because so many of the traditional SLAs by which contractors are managed fall foul of exactly like that. It looks like we've saved cost, but you haven't really, if you could look at the whole picture. Uh, because we can't measure the right things. In terms of, of kind of moving forward from that, what yeah. obviously is a slightly unhealthy relationship with contractors there, um, I think for me the key is to to kind of get them on side so we can have a, a sort of collaborative, positive conversation about it. So it's not a case of, of being sort of adversarial and going, hey, here's where you're letting our customers down. 
it's a case of working together to say, well, what are the right things to measure? You know, we should be able to make money out of this contract, but also we should be adding value to your business through this contract. So how can we turn it into a positive conversation? Yeah, are you going to talk about um, the um, blueprint? I am. <laughs> just before you, just before you talk about that, my, my, my optician once told me I was I was colour blind. It was like a bolt out of the green. Wow. <laughs> so I'll probably edit that one out. Uh, if I haven't, everyone, I apologise. But, uh, but yes, I will talk about the service blueprint. Um, and I think and the beauty of the service blueprint as a tool, uh, and this is something that you can find in um, this is service design thinking or this is service design doing, or if you have a Google, you'll be able to find some sort of details about, uh, about the service blueprint as a tool. In a nutshell, what, what it does is it connects up a customer journey map, you know, so what, what does a customer see, with a kind of very high level process map. So what yeah. is it that we do and who's involved in doing those things to deliver a customer journey? And the reason I, th I find it very helpful is it's, it's a great way to have a conversation with everyone who's involved in creating that customer experience. So whether it's you know, all of the people within a business, but also external suppliers, if we can get them in a room, run a service blueprint workshop, and it's a very good way to have those positive conversations about you know, why is this happening for customers can sometimes be a little bit finger pointy, but usually you can work through that and say, well, okay, what what could we collectively do to restructure the you know, the, the nature of the relationship to, to make this work better? I think it's really powerful in terms of trying to understand why the customer sees what they see and not necessarily who, but why are they seeing that? Because businesses would spend a lot of time trying to make the process seamless and mm. um, but then struggle a little bit when we say, okay, so how do we improve this? Because the customer doesn't know we do that, or I don't do that, or someone else does that. So it really does, I think, come come back to you know, you know, the lens of the customer and understanding what are they seeing, why are they seeing it, seeing it, why are we making them feel like that? Yeah. And it's it's exactly that. That's the beauty of it. I think is that, is that by starting with the customer journey map you have a, an accurate picture of what actually happens out there in the world, um, at, at least as far as customers are concerned. Because the trouble with process maps is they tend to be fictional. It's not actually how things <laughs> work in practice. And the trouble with customer journey maps is that they're accurate to the customer view, but customers can't diagnose for you. They don't know why yeah. what happened to them happened to them. Whereas once you start talking to staff, and especially staff in lots of different departments, and get contractors involved as well, you can really get to the nuts and bolts of why is this thing happening. Um, and to give you a quick example of, a, of the kind of positive con conversation I'm talking about, I, I was in, uh, or we did some service blueprint workshops for, a, again, a social landlord client of ours about the repairs journey. Right. And the repairs contractor was in the room and some of the um, landlord staff were in the room. And it, it, some of that conversation was a little bit it's your fault, no, it's our fault. But there's some genuinely positive discussions coming yeah. out of that. So, for example, one of the things that the contractor was saying is, Jen, what would really help it would be, you know, our operatives turn up at the job and they've got really no idea what it is. And they broadly know, oh, it's a boiler that needs fixed. But yeah. They haven't got any other detail. So if, if the, the details you've got in your system could be fed through to the PDA of the people in the van who are actually turning up, that would help, help us do a good job for the customer and know what we're going to walk into. 
So it's yeah. the sort of thing that it's a good idea. It doesn't hopefully shouldn't cost very much, and it's an example of the contractor. I think not trying to you know um, get out of anything, not trying to do anything other than say this would help us do a good job for you. Um, and those sorts of things, I think, tend to come out of it because you're looking at that, that sort of end-to-end system rather than counting up and having that, that sort of punitive thing of going, or oh, customers think you're missing a lot of appointments or yeah, that, that sort or of thing. having to come back because you didn't turn up with the right parts, exactly. whereas exactly. only they'd yeah. have known. And that probably is true subcontracting where it's, it is a partnership and we're on the same team here. And the, the advantage of having the same goal is it helps you see that you're on the same team as opposed to perhaps one team saying, well, I want to pay you as little as I can to do this. Mm-hmm. And the other person thinking, well, I'm going to do as little as I can to this. So if there's a, a common goal and objective, that would seem like a better way of everyone winning, really. 100% agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, Christopher Daffy's once a customer, always a customer, um, and, and very much talk about badgers. That's badgers, not badgers. Um, so one of the ideas he had, and it really goes in, 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 into what you're saying, Stephen, is trying to ensure that internal staff are focused on helping the customer-facing staff do what they want to do. And he puts forward, you know, an example, it's sort of a manufacturing company, whereby they introduced a system where the customer-facing staff had red badges and the internal staff had blue badges. And the idea was, if any red badge person asked someone to do something, a blue badge person, that, that trumped any blue badge instruction. And it sounds quite simple, but if you think about it, it's really powerful. Because when we all go to work and we're trying to develop careers and things like this, if, if, if a really important director says, can you get me that report for tomorrow, you focus on doing that. Mm-hmm. And then if someone, if a customer-facing member of staff says, oh, I need this doing, you know, and if you can't do both those things, you do a bit of prioritization. And it wouldn't be uncommon, I think, to prioritize the request by the seniority of the person who's requesting it. So you say to the frontline staff, sorry, can't do that because I've got a really important thing to do for this director. Um, and that probably is how a lot of business businesses operate. But I think if the communication had been different, I'm sure that director, if asked the question, mm. you know, do you want this report tomorrow? or perhaps a bit later tomorrow, because I've got something to do for a customer, I think the director, nine times out of ten, would say, yeah, sure, do it for a customer. But that conversation never happens. So the the prioritisation is done by someone who's doing the best, but is just seeing internal hierarchy is more important than internal or external. And I think it's a really clever way of thinking about it. And even if, you know, sometimes, you know, if I think about myself and who do you respond to, and just making sure, actually, you know, is the customer coming first here? Yeah, I think it, it's very, I think particularly as companies scale. So I think in, in a small business, it's relatively easy to see that the customer comes first. I think in business to business businesses, um, it's often relatively easy to see because, because the customer is so important. Each individual customer is such a, a big percentage of your overall revenue, it becomes easier to see. But I think you know, as you get bigger, as it becomes more a sort of volume business to consumer business, 
Um, yeah, each individual customer is hard to see the value of then, I think, uh, or harder. So, so those, you probably wouldn't do the red badge, blue badge thing, uh, you know, for the rest of time, but as a sort of one-off, just to let's, let's think about turning the pyramid upside down. Let's think about, you know, who really is running this business. Is it customers or is it, you know, the chief exec? It makes a point, at least, doesn't it? Yeah. And whilst not necessarily about suppliers, but I do often think <laughs> in my local sort of convenience store that where you go in and you're in a queue to pay and there is only one person on the till and there are other people there who can operate the till. They are just packing shelves at that moment. Um, and it always slightly amazes me that they don't actually move from packing shelves to the till to the one person on the till pressing the bell, the mm. panic bell. Yeah. And I sort of think that's obviously a process that they've developed, that if it gets busy, I'll press a bell. But I'm thinking, surely as an organisation, you don't really want the bell being pressed. Can't you just say, hey, that's looking busy. I will suspend my filling up these shelves and I'll go and do what the customers want me to do at this moment, which is helping them check out in a speedy professional um, way. I know that's more staff than supplier, but I think, again, it's one of these, you know, the blueprint you're, the, the, that you're talking about. I think just that scenario of seeing the world through the customer <laughs> and what the customer sees and feels and then trying to build the process around that, mm. it's actually a lot easier said than done, I think, in many cases. It is. I think what we're talking about in many ways is kind of ways to get the culture to such a place that those decisions are instinctively made by by most stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think you do that by not making a process, but by creating the right culture. Yeah, and having that culture, not just with staff, but with the, you know, your suppliers who you're making responsible yeah. for it. They have to, they have to live and feel your brand. Mm. You know, otherwise they're not seen as part of your, your brand. That, mm. That's really what you want them um, to do with. Brilliant. There's probably one more thing I wanted to mention, actually, just in, in passing. Okay. Which is, when um, when I run a workshop, one of the, the things I like to start off with is a bit of an icebreaker warming up type session. is something called the pre-mortem, um, which is one of the many, many excellent kind of games in, in the book Game Storming. And the idea of the pre-mortem is you say, well, why is this going to fail? So, you know, this, this workshop, this this sort of... Uh, program we're undertaking of improving the customer experience, why is it going to go wrong? Um, which might seem a bit negative, uh, but, but the benefit of that is it gets it gets everything out in the open, yeah. it gets all the elephants in the room yeah. um, sort of down on a bit of paper to be addressed. That's good. Uh, and it's, it's, it is a good exercise, it is a good warming up type thing, and it does some useful work. What do you think, reg and different organisations yeah. will different, mention different things. What do you think the two most common ones are? This is anecdote, not fact, although um, my, my instinct for the t top two are. The top two things... Uh, the sort of blockers, what, what the things that are going to make this project fail. Um, people won't follow through on actions or some commitment to it won't be honoured flavour of the month. Senior management commitment is, is, I would say, definitely one of them. That yeah, this, as you say, this is this is a, another flavour of the month thing, and it'll peter out. And perhaps, I don't believe this one, but I hear this one a lot about unrealistic customer expectations. We'll never be able to do what they want because they want everything for nothing. Yeah, you do sometimes get that sort of moon on a stick type thing. Yeah, customers <laughs> are completely uh, unreasonable. 
I, I think that and the other big one I was angling yeah. for is in slightly different wording, but basically IT systems. So we'll come <laughs> right. up with loads of good ideas and IT won't be able to make them happen. And, and I sometimes think IT gets a bit of an unfair kicking, actually. But, but basically, we, the support systems we need for this to happen, it'll be too expensive, it'll be too difficult, it'll take too long. We won't be able to make these changes stick. And are they saying IT to cover a lot of internal support rather than just technology? Probably, yes. I mean, I think there's, there's quite a lot of... Um, that, that Depending on the business, that yeah. IT covers a, a, a huge <laughs> wealth of different different things. So yeah. Some of it's hardware, some of it's software. But I think you know, there's, that, there's that idea that if you think in those sort of service blueprint terms again, somewhere down there, it, you know, a long way from the customer, there is this kind of support layer of systems and stuff that supports the way we're working that we're kind of stuck in this you know antediluvian world that nothing works properly or we can't change it because it's always been like that mm. and every financial services client that i've had for the over the past few years at some point in every conversation it you see the idea that somewhere there's a creaking mainframe computer in a basement somewhere <laughs> and everyone looks a bit nervous whenever they talk about it mm. because they know somewhere down the line there is a disaster looming. And when you read in the news about you know the problems that some banks have had with ATMs and so on, yeah. I think you start to see why that makes people nervous. Um, so, so how do you overcome that as the white elephant in, in the room? Because that would seem more challenging and I know we can talk about very sort of flexible um, IT systems that can adapt themselves because I I can relate to the story where a lot of people think well I could do this but I don't have that information to to hand and certainly you've seen a change in if if you think of hotels at least now quite often when you check in they do realize that you have stayed there before Um, for one of my most frequent hotels Given I've been doing this job 20 years now and I've been staying in a hotel for about 18 years. I've seen at least four different renovations of it. I do still find it quite amusing when they say, have you have you stayed here before, Mr. Roche? Uh, and I think, um, yes, I have. Last week and the week before that <laughs> and right. the week before that. Yeah. yeah, so I'm all right. You don't need to spend your valuable time telling me what time breakfast is and where it is. I've been coming here many years. You could use that time on another custom. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, for me, the, the, the takeaway is not so much, oh, it's always IT's fault. Um, it, it's more, I think, two things. One is that a lot of organisations have been putting off a big investment in sort of support systems for a yeah. long time. And that is going to hurt when we have to, to, to bite the bullet on it. Um, so you might, rail infrastructure in the country might be a similar sort of parallel that yeah. at some point when we know we're going to have to do it and when we do it it's going to cost us a fortune but maybe we don't have to do it this year uh, so we can put it off a little bit. I think the, and the other aspect is a lot of those systems have traditionally not been designed from the customer up. Yeah. They've been designed to make life easy for us in the business, yeah. uh, so easy on paper. So I think if the more we can a, embrace the fact that, that we should be able to think about investing in changing systems. Not necessarily we should change everything, yeah. but we should at least be on the table. And B, that we should start from the point of view, you know, what works well for customers? 
what helps our people at the front line do what works well for customers yeah. and use that as the starting point for our design. Yeah, and build it that way rather than externally outwards. So yeah, that's, that probably wraps up um, how you can make external internal suppliers responsible for uh, delivering customer satisfaction. That's number eight out of 10. Eight out of 10. Uh, thank you very much for listening. If you're using iTunes, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter at TLF Research or at tlfresearch.com. And we'll be back next month with, with number nine out of 10 with more ideas for turning your customer insight into impact and action. Thank you very much. Thank you.